Well, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Jude. It's just one chapter, so just Jude. Um, so Jude, we are starting a sermon series in Jude, and um, you might know this, you might know, not know this, uh, it's toward the, the back of your Bible, it's right before the book of Revelation, and um, it's a small book, and uh, it's also a very much a neglected book. Um, it can be kind of strange at, at certain points, and because of that, uh, because it, it can often sound strange to our ears as, as uh, you know, modern Westerners, uh, a lot of people just don't give it as much focus. It's, it's probably the most neglected book in the New Testament, but it's very much uh, a book that we need in our particular cultural moment, as Jude calls us to contend for the faith. So, we're going to start the series this morning. We're going to be looking at Jude 1 and 2, uh, but before we get into it, let's take a moment to pray. Father, uh, would you bless the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power and anointing of your spirit? Uh, we need you. Open our eyes, uh, open our ears, open our hearts to receive the truth of the word. Uh, Lord, take these, uh, these meager uh, ele- uh, elements and, and offerings that I bring now and multiply them uh, to bring yourself glory and to make Jesus Christ known. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, it, was, it was John Calvin who once said, uh, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth was attacked and yet would remain silent. And uh, that is, that's, a, uh, I think, a good description of Jude's disposition in this letter, in this epistle. Uh, Jude saw the truth of his master attacked, and he could not, would not remain silent. And not only that, but he also beckons his hearers to not remain silent as well. Uh, If you look at verse 3 of Jude's letter, you find the sort of purpose statement of the book. And there he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, In other words, while he initially meant to write to his uh, audience, which is either a church or a group of churches, we're not exactly sure. Well, he initially meant to write to them about the redemption of Jesus that they share in together. He decided to redirect his course. Instead, as he goes on to describe in the letter, he found out that there were false teachers who had crept into this church or these churches and were seeking to lead people astray from the truth of Jesus Christ. And because of this, he now no longer means to write to them about their common salvation, but in order to encourage them to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, to defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints by Jesus Christ and his apostles. And he does that in this rather short letter. Uh, Again, it's, it's just a single chapter. It literally takes about two minutes to read. So I would encourage you this week uh, to read through it every single day this week, the whole of the letter, every single time. You definitely have enough time. If you watch Netflix or check social media, you have enough time to read this book uh, every day this week, I promise you. 
And if you do read it, you'll find that we're not given a, a ton of specifics regarding uh, Jude's original audience or the, the false teachers that he's referring to or the nature of the false teaching uh, that, they're, that they're holding to. But there are some hints. Uh, we can assume that his audience, uh, by the way, whether it be a single church or a group of churches, have a largely Jewish uh, uh, group, a largely Jewish audience here. Uh, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures and even some obscure kind of extra biblical Jewish literature as if his audience just knew what he was talking about. Um, and so we can assume that there are some ethnically Jewish uh, believers in his audience. Uh, and what's more is that we find some, some hints regarding the false teachers as well. Uh, we find that they were given to sensuality and uh, even blatant sexual immorality as well, since Jude compares these false teachers to the sexually immoral people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He also indicates that these false teachers deny God's authority and instead follow their own instinctual feelings to help them deci or decide or determine what they think to be true and right. Uh, and there's more, we'll get into it more, but suffice it to say, Jude's encouragement in all of this for this church or churches is to contend for the faith, to contend for the faith. And this is a timely word for us, a timely word. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are myriad challenges to our faith, it seems like at every turn today. Uh, for many of us, when growing up, Christianity in the U.S. was maybe not admired, maybe in some places admired, but at least respected as a viable path or worldview uh, by many in our culture today. But today in many circles, Christianity is not only not admired nor respected, it's often actually viewed as immoral and reprehensible at times. It's, it's viewed more and more by many as something to be left in the past and for those of us who continue to hold to it, we're viewed as, as, you know, living on the wrong side of history is the thing you'll often hear. Holding back the, the progress of the human race. And, and, and listen, I, I say this as a fact of reality. This is not like me kind of uh, looking back on the history of the West with nostalgia or, or affection or anything. That wouldn't be of use to any of us, not to mention it would be kind of pathetic. We are called to live in the time in which we've been given, and the time and place that we've been given, and the time and place that we've been given is a time and place in which Christianity is challenged or even attacked at times. This is the time that we are called to live in. And with that, we as Christians and churches can tend to respond in one of three ways. And especially over the last few years, uh, the, the choice to respond is, is really often being forced by, by many uh, as our culture kind of changes at, at such a rapid pace. And so response is needed, even inevitable. Response is inevitable. We have to respond in some way. And the question is, therefore, not will we respond, but how are we going to respond? And in all of this, again, we can respond in one of three ways. The first way that we can respond is compromise. Compromise. We can compromise Christian beliefs and convictions, and we can do this in a number of ways. You know, some who uh, have professed to be Christians in the past might entirely abandon the faith at times. Others might not abandon the faith entirely, but they might edit 
Christian beliefs to better fit their, you know, their kind of consumeristic preferences or the, the cultural norms of the day. And, and this response is, is actually uh, become something of a trendy thing to do. As, as we see on social media, pe- many people go through uh, you know, what they're calling like public deconstructions. They'll deconstruct the faith. You see this with people like uh, Michael Gunger or Rhett and Link or Marty Simpson or Audrey Aside, uh, all of the members of the band Under Oath and, and, and others like that have really undergone what they call deconstruction. We'll talk a bit more about deconstruction throughout the series, but we also want to talk about another uh, response common amongst Christians, and that's not uh, compromising, but contentiousness. Contentiousness, being contentious, being quarrelsome, picking fights, being argumentative. Uh, we might choose to, to brush up on our apologetics and listen to podcasts that pretty much merely deal with polemics in Christian circles, and there's nothing wrong with brushing up on apologetics. That's a good thing. But sometimes we can do that as a means of the end of just being contentious and picking fights and being quarrelsome. Sometimes we can see things get so bad that Christians might even start to have like conspiratorial ways of thinking toward uh, other Christians and churches and denominations and, and institutions that lead to attitudes of suspicion or hostility toward uh, other Christians and churches. And this kind of response has become increasingly common in our tribe of Christianity over the last year or so. It's like a cancer that's eating away at the life of churches and denominations across the U.S. You see it in pretty much every denomination. Uh, And so we can talk more about that problem of, of contentiousness as a response. But above all, we want to call you to this. Instead of compromising, instead of being contentious, Jude calls us to contend. He calls us to contend. Yes, he calls us to contend. We're to respond by contending, to fight. Yes, to fight, but but to fight in a biblical way with Christ-like character and with hearts that are motivated for Christ's glory and moved by his grace and mercy and compassion so that we fight like Jesus fights. And so during this series, we want to explore what that means and what it looks like in our particular cultural moment. We might not answer every question you might have, but we want to equip you for the fight that we are facing and will inevitably face in the coming years. But, you know, like with all good journeys, we have to start at the beginning. And if we're to start at the beginning, we don't start in Jude's kind of main point and purpose of the book in verse 3. We start with this greeting in verses 1 and 2, and, and Jude's greeting is um, it's delicious. It's just lovely, and uh, there's much here. It's, uh, it, it, it's showing us a very important reality, the sort of big idea that I want to explore this morning, is that in order to contend for the faith, we need to first know who we are in Christ. Before we contend for the faith, we need to know who we are in Christ. And so look at verses 1 and 2 with me if you want to stand For the reading of God's holy and precious word, we'll look at Jude, verses 1 and 2. Let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the word of our God, as Jude writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called... 
beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I want to title this sermon, The Christian's Profile. The Christian's Profile. You know, perhaps you're, you're familiar with uh, a literary profile. So a profile uh, is not quite a biography, but it's pretty similar. It's more like a, like a short biographical sketch of a person. A, a profile may provide a short description of a person, an overview of uh, their life. It might highlight... Um, a description of, of, of uh, certain achievements, major life events. It might even give you a, 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 a quick um, snapshot of, of uh, their characteristics, their personalities. It's meant to give you a quick outline or sketch of an individual's identity. And that's sort of what Jude is doing here for the Christian. Uh, he's giving us a bit of a, a biographical sketch for the, the Christian, for every believer. You know, if you want a, a short line or a short outline of who you are as a Christian, uh, you can look at Jude 1 and 2 and see this is who you are as a follower of Jesus. And this is a necessary thing for, for Jude to do because, as we've already seen, he's going to go on to uh, exhort his hearers to contend for the faith. Um, but before we can effectively and rightly contend for the faith, we need to know who we are. Uh, we need to know our identity, our vocation, our, our position. You know, before a soldier is enlisted to fight for his country, he needs to know uh, who he is as a citizen. He needs to know that he belongs to this particular people in this particular place. He needs to have a sense of identity and purpose that relates to his uh, fight. He needs to know what it is he's fighting for, and what kind of fight he's to engage in. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, similarly, we need to have these things settled in our minds before we move on to contending and fighting for the faith. And so, as we explore the Christian's profile, we want to look at the Christian's post in the first half of verse 1, the Christian's position in the second half of verse 1, and the Christian's prosperity in verse 2. Uh, first, we see the Christian's post. Jude writes in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, uh, right away, we might be hit with the question of like who this Jude character is. And it might help uh, to recognize that in the original, uh, the name is actually Judas. It's actually Judas. Uh, and of course, you know, Jude is an acceptable rendering uh, for the name of Jude in English. And so in order to not confuse Jude with, you know, Judas, um, who betrayed Jesus, the English translation tradition has been uh, to just uh, translate this man's name as Jude. Uh, but with that, there are actually a few figures with the name Jude or Judas in the New Testament. Uh, there's Judas the betrayer, uh, of course, but that's obviously not who's writing here. Uh, but then there are two other possibilities. There's the Apostle Jude, uh, who is uh, also called Thaddeus at times, uh, who has a brother named James. But then there's also Jesus' half-brother, Jesus' younger half-brother, who also has a brother named James, who's also a half-brother of Jesus. So with that, there's some disagreements regarding which Jude this is here. 
However, the majority of the Christian tradition uh, throughout the last a uh, couple of thousand years, has concluded that this Jude is actually the half-brother of our Lord, and this tradition goes all the way back to the second century with the likes of uh, Eusebius and Clement of Alexandria. Uh, and Clement of Alexandria actually claimed that uh, not only that Jude was the half-brother of our Lord, Clement actually provided some historical evidence for this claim. Uh, and, and so we, we can rightly conclude that this is likely Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Now with that, don't you think it's interesting that Jude doesn't, um, he doesn't leverage his relationship with the Lord Jesus? You know, it would have been very easy for him to leverage that relationship to kind of gain a hearing or to, to gain a kind of gravitas with his hearers by simply appealing to the family name, uh, you know, and, and, and yet he doesn't do that. Instead, he calls himself, he refers to himself not as the half-brother of Jesus. Instead, he calls himself a servant of Jesus. <coughs> Instead of seeking to gain a kind of privileged position by his family of origin, he humbles himself under the lordship and mastery of Jesus and proclaims himself to be a servant, literally a doulos, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, what Jude says of, of himself here can be said of every Christian and ought to be said of every Christian. Uh, Christ is our Lord and Master. He's the Lord of the universe, as we were singing about earlier. And what's more is he is in a particular way for the Christian. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. All of us, prior to conversion, were enslaved to sin and Satan, but Jesus came and he purchased us with the price of his very own blood. And he has redeemed us to himself. We are his servants. We are his servants. That is our post. That is our vocation. That is our calling. Now, I may need to go without saying that such language can tend to make modern people kind of squirm. It makes us uncomfortable. In an age of, of you do you and find your truth and follow your heart, we can tend to value autonomy and individuality and, and independency. And, and any talk of being a servant, having a lord or a master over you just seems to be archaic, if not oppressive. But in the immortal words of theologian Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody, yes indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody, well it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And it's true, ultimately, you will serve something or somebody, you will bow the knee to something or someone, the only choice you have is in choosing what that thing is. Uh, deceased atheist uh, author David Foster Wallace, he claimed this very thing uh, in a graduation speech he once gave, listen to what he says. And he claimed, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And, and you could uh, substitute that word worship there for like serve. It's talking about worship, that, the kind of worship you do in everyday life, which is serving some ultimate thing. 
Uh, so everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. And you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will ever need more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And tragically, Wallace actually later committed suicide, sadly illustrating the despair that he speaks of here. But, but what he speaks of here is True, you will serve something or someone even if you decide to serve yourself, as, as John Lennon said. John Lennon wrote a, a song called Serve Yourself in response to, to Bob Dylan's song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. But reality is, when it comes down to it, you know, so much of the world's counsel to serve yourself or follow your heart or do what's, what, what do you or, or, or follow your truth or whatever is really an encouragement to serve the very kinds of things that Wallace speaks of here. You know, you do you and, and find your truth really ends up looking a lot like, you know, nothing more than serving the body or sex or beauty or serving money and possessions and cool experiences or serving the intellect and education and career or, or whatever else. It's, it's, it's all a call to serve something outside of you and really the call to do you and find your truth is a call to just make the thing you serve whatever it is that your heart desires in the moment. But here, Wallace's point, can't you see how that's wearing thin? It's wearing thin. Can't you see how serving sex or beauty or money or possessions or intellect or career or the rest of it, it all rips people apart limb by limb, making them anxious and miserable and afraid and atomized and lonely. Isn't that what we're seeing right now in our time, in our place, in our particular cultural moment? And, 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 and increasing discontentment and misery, even while there's a rise of people doing whatever the heck they want to do. There is loneliness, anxiety, discontentment. These things are at epidemic levels even while people more than ever are encouraged to do whatever the heck they want. Why? Because serving such things will eat you alive because they demand everything of you and give nothing in return. And of course, you know, Jesus, Jesus demands everything from us. He demands everything from you as well. He calls us to be his servants. Indeed, but here's the difference with Jesus, though. While he demands everything you are, he also gives you everything he is. He gives you himself. He gives you his life. He gives you his peace, his righteousness, his holiness, his position as son, and more. And all of this because he himself has taken on the position of being a servant, He's taken on the position of being a servant on this earth. And in so doing, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you, he shed his blood. He gave himself entirely for you to purchase you and redeem you. And so with that, 
You've been bought with a price. He demands everything from you. Just like, just like those other things, dude. Just like serving money or possessions or whatever else does. But unlike anyone or anything else, Jesus gives all that he is to you as well. And doesn't that change? Shouldn't that change? Oughtn't that change our attitudes toward being his servants? Shouldn't that change us from being somewhat leery of being called servants to gladly giving ourselves to, to him in trust and obedience? After all, if he loves us and he desires our good to the point that he would die to redeem us and save us, wouldn't it then follow that any demands he makes of us as our Lord and our master must ultimately be coming from a place of his being interested in our good and our flourishing? And so we gladly take up the post of servant to Jesus, which is not limited to, but nonetheless is, is certainly involving contending for the faith contending for our master's truth, as Calvin said and, and Jude demonstrates here. We're, we're, we're to contend for the truth because we're servants of Jesus. That's our post. And indeed, since he's been so good for us, and he's been so good to us, rather, we can't remain silent when his truth is attacked, but we contend for the faith. We serve him. But then Jude not only profiles the Christian's post to, to encourage us to contend, he also profiles the Christian's position in order to help us contend. And this is what we find him do uh, as we go on in the rest of verse 1 to say, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And now one of the things we might notice about Jude as we get more and more into into his letter is that he really likes triads. He likes triplets. He likes putting things in, in threes. Uh, we'll see this in verse 2 as well in just a moment. But, but here we find a, a triad or a triplet regarding our position as God's people and that we're called, beloved, and kept. Called, beloved, and kept. And you might remember just earlier uh, this year when we went through the Chain of Salvation sermon series, uh, we came across this doctrine that we called the effectual call. Uh, God effectually calls his children from death to life out of darkness into light, from serving sin to serving Him. And this is what Jude is reminding his hearers about. Their salvation is not the result of their own doing or virtue or power or anything of themselves. Their salvation is a result of God's Spirit working through God's Word to raise His children from spiritual death. The voice of God worked through the voice of His people to call you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Uh, We might um, compare the effectual call to a a kind of subpoena. A subpoena is a summons uh, from someone with real authority, right? So uh, a government agency, a court, a judge, whomever, to compel a witness to come forward would give them a, uh, a subpoena, a summons to come and give their testimony. Well, in the effectual call that Jude reminds us of here, we're reminded that we've been subpoenaed from death to life. We've been subpoenaed from slavery to salvation, all as a result of God's loving choice of us. He loved us, he chose us, and so he called us to himself and to his kingdom, which brings us to the next point uh, and the aspect of our position in the stride is that's, that we're beloved, we're beloved. Jude says that God's people are beloved in God the Father, beloved in God the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, in was not the preposition I expected to see there. 
uh, I, I would expect it to say, beloved, by God the Father. And uh, some of your translations might actually say that. And, and that would be a true statement, of course. That's a, we're beloved by God the Father. And yet it does say in. It says in. And what that's doing is giving us, a, a, I think, a picture of a love that, that embraces, a love that envelops, a love that, that includes. It's a love that brings you into the family and into the sphere of God's love and embrace. Uh, this is not the general kind of love that God has for the whole of humanity. This is a special love that is only reserved for God's own beloved children who have been welcomed into his family and his embrace. And of course, later, as we move on to see in Jude 21, Jude will exhort us to to keep ourselves in the love of God. Uh, That is to, to persevere in the faith and to stay within the safety of God's beloved family. And that's a much needed exhortation for us. And we'll get there eventually. But to begin with, Jude wants us to be encouraged by the fact that our keeping ourselves in the love of God is a sure thing because it's ultimately dependent upon the God who keeps us. As we see here in the third aspect of our position in this triad, we're kept, kept. Jude says that we're kept for Jesus Christ. Again, Jude calls us throughout his letter to persevere, to contend, to fight, to keep ourselves, to keep the faith. This letter is wrought full of exhortations for us that relate to human responsibility and our responsibility as believers to persevere. But just so that we don't misunderstand, he actually begins and ends this book with a promise that God is the one who keeps us. God is the one who keeps us. It's a a beautifully balanced picture of sovereign grace and human responsibility. God sovereignly calls and keeps, and yet that doesn't contradict or undermine the reality of human effort. And and, and yet, even even the human effort that we put forth is a result of God's sovereign grace. In keeping our keeping of ourselves in the love of God is the result of God's keeping us. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But even in so doing, who is it that's actually causing you to work? It's God who's actually working within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're to keep ourselves, but we only keep ourselves because he is keeping us. Jude wants us to see that we've been bought at far too great a price for God to ever let us go now. Our redemption has cost too much for God to mishandle us now. You know, we tend to be uh, particularly careful regarding things that have cost us much. If, if we, you know, spent much on a car or a home or a piece of clothing, we're all the more likely to steward that thing well and to care for it all the more carefully. And if we are prone to take great care of things that we have paid much for, how much more will God take care of us when we have cost the blood of his most precious son. He will not let us go. He will not let us falter. He will not let us fall. He will keep us so that he may present us 
to his son as a beloved bride on the last day. He is keeping us safe to give us as a love gift to his son at the great cosmic wedding to come. That's our position. That's your position, Christian. You are called, beloved, kept. And and maybe you can see how this might change the way in which we would contend and fight for the faith. We don't need to to fight, personally speaking, if we're fighting, contending to keep our own faith. We don't need to fight for our own faith to keep ourselves in the love of God with a kind of anxiety or uncertainty. Uncertain about whether or not we will persevere or make it to the end or lose our faith. Y'all, we're Calvinists. We don't need to be anxious about anything. We don't need to be anxious about a thing. We can be completely at peace because we don't contend for our position. We contend from our position. We are called, beloved, and kept. It is God who calls. It is God who calls us beloved. It is God who keeps. And so we are secure and preserved in Him. Or maybe we should consider the way that that we contend for the faith toward the outside world. You know, so much of what we see in in, uh, the public sphere with Christians today looks like anxiety-ridden, hand-wringing, fearful that we're going to like lose a culture war or something, which is like done, like it's lost, it's over. Uh, we're we're going to lose some privileged place in society. We've lost it. It's gone. And yet we don't need to be anxious or fearful about a thing. We don't need to be fearful of anyone or anything at all because The one who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell calls us beloved and has seated us in the most privileged position of being called beloved and kept. We don't need to be anxious contenders. We can be happy contenders. We can be contenders who are at peace. We can be contented, well-rested contenders all because of the abundant grace that our God has lavished on us in His Son. Which brings us lastly to the Christian's prosperity. Verse 2 says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So here, I find another triad, another triplet. Three graces in the Christian's life which Jude prays that his hearers would prosper in. Notice he wants his hearers to experience these graces in abundance. He doesn't just want them to have a little bit of mercy, peace, and love. He wants them to prosper in them and to have them in abundance. And the word that he uses for this is this word multiplied. Not just increased, not just added, but multiplied. As Charles Spurgeon, he's, he said this great thing about this. Uh, he said about this word multiplied, he says, is that not a beautiful word, multiplied? Not merely increased, but multiplied. You know what it is to increase. You add one on two, and that's three. But when you multiply, you say three times three, that is nine. Multiplying is a quick way of growing. And here Jude would see mercy, peace, and love multiply and be in us and with us in abundance and prosperity. He wants us to be like a fruitful garden, been planted with the seeds of God's mercy, peace, and love, and multiplying and being like a fruitful gardening, excess life that we hand to one another because of the grace of God. And now what does he mean by mercy, peace, and love? What does he mean? Is he talking about these You know, in a vertical sense, is he talking about, like, does he mean that he wants God's mercy and peace and love to be multiplied for us? 
Does he mean that he wants us to grow like in a, in a deeper knowledge of and have a deeper experience of God's mercies and peace and love? Is it, is it the vertical kind of, of uh, sense here? Or does he mean he wants us to have mercy, peace, and love in more of a horizontal sense? Uh, like he's saying that he wants us to have these, these characteristics uh, uh, among us as a church uh, so that we, in our community and relationships with one another, are more merciful toward one another, more peaceful, peaceable with one another, more loving toward one another. And I think it seems like he might have both in mind here. Uh, a parallel text to this is found in Second Peter. Second Peter has a lot of parallel texts to Jude, actually. It might be good to, to go read that as well. Uh, it might shed light on some of what Jude is writing about. Uh, but in fact, you know, leading scholars actually seem to think that Peter was borrowing much from Jude uh, when he wrote Second Peter. And in Second Peter 1, 2-3, Peter gives a similar greeting there. Listen to what he says. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So you can see the vertical aspects. We're growing in the knowledge of God and Christ. There's also the horizontal aspects as he's granted us everything needful for life and godliness. In other words, he, he, he wants grace and peace to be multiplied to who, in the church to whom he's writing by their growth in the knowledge of God in Christ. And that growth in the knowledge of God in Christ, by that he wants them to be furnished with these very virtues and characteristics in the ways that they relate to one another in their local church communities. And I want you to see that he has the local church here in mind. Okay, so, so here he has local church members, ways of relating to one another in view here. Uh, take that, that word uh, translated as you here. That is actually in the plural. Uh, this is one of the problems with, with uh, English uh, language is, is that we don't have a way to distinguish between uh, the singular and plural second person pronouns. Uh, and some cultures in the U.S. will try to remedy this. If you go to Pittsburgh, they're going to call you like a group of you yins, right? Have you heard that? That is not as cool as just the classic Appalachian way of doing it. We say, y'all, y'all. And that's what Jude is saying here. He's saying, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to y'all. Y'all, plural, second person pronoun. And with that, it is clear. Jude is desiring and praying for the church to prosper in mercy and peace and love toward one another. He wants them to prosper in mercy and peace and love as a community in their relationships with one another. He wants God's mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied in these church members so that they begin to relate to one another in ways that are more merciful and peaceable and loving. He wants the seeds of God's mercy, peace, and love sowed in them so that they would bear fruit as a people who are merciful and peaceable and loving like a fruitful garden. And he wants this, listen, even in the midst of all of this nastiness and, and all of this treacherous times that, that these churches are going through right now. In fact, he'll go on to later exhort them, even in the midst of all of the difficulty they're facing, to be merciful toward one another. Even while contending, he says, be merciful toward one another, particularly be merciful to those who are struggling with doubt and in danger of falling away. You see, he wants them, even while contending, 
to be merciful toward one another, not cruel. He wants them to be peaceable toward one another, not contentious. He wants them to be loving, not bitter and hateful and resentful. That there's a fine line between being contentious and being a contender, and Jude wants us to be careful to not cross the line. Yes, Calvin, Calvin was right when he said that we ought not remain silent. When our master's truth is attacked, but as a different Calvin, Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes once said, there's not enough scientific research devoted to finding a cure for jerks. So, the gospel is supposed to be the cure for jerks. It is. It's supposed to be the cure for jerks. Knowing our post, knowing our position in Christ is the cure for being a jerk. We're not to be jerks. We're to be marked by the characteristics of mercy, peace, and love. The world needs churches and Christians that are marked by mercy, meaning being marked by forgiveness and patience and tenderness. The, the, the world needs churches and Christians marked by peace, meaning people who uh, pursue reconciliation and harmony and unity and agreement. The world needs churches and Christians marked by love, Christians who put others' good and flourishing above their own. The church and the world need such contenders, such grace-filled contenders, merciful contenders, peaceable contenders, loving contenders. This is what the world needs. This is what our city needs. This is what our church needs. And it all starts with recognizing that we ourselves have been the recipients of the mercy, peace, and love of God. As Paul says in Romans, be tender-hearted toward one another, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be merciful toward one another. This is this, he's been merciful to, to us. He's not giving us what we deserve, but he's forgiving our sins. He's given us peace with himself so that there's no enmity. We are objectively reconciled to God and have harmony with him in Christ. We have peace with him, and he's loved us. He's called us beloved and brought us into the realm of his care and keeping. We are the called, beloved, those kept by God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, being bought with a price to serve Him in His kingdom forever. This is our post. This is our position. This is our prosperity. And this is, this is what we need to know. This is the profile of your life as a Christian. This is what we need to know before we move on to talk about contending so that we can be happy contenders contented contenders, merciful contenders, peaceable contenders, loving contenders, not compromisers, not contentious, but contenders who know our post, our position, and the prosperity that God has given us in Christ. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would seal these words upon our hearts so that we would be people who are marked by mercy, peace, and love. We pray that we would not seek to, to simply manufacture that spiritual fruit and just earnestly try really hard to, to, to manifest mercy, peace, and love, but to find 
those things in you, to find your mercy, your peace, your love, and to be so contented by that, and to be so at rest in that, in the ways in which you've called us and, and lavished grace on us, that these things result out of an abundance of life and gratitude and love because of who you are for us in Christ. Lord, be at work within us as we come to the Lord's table. Remind us of the Lord Jesus and what He's done to to purchase us with His most precious blood and give us a, a deep and abiding communion with Him and help us look forward to the day when we can lay down our weapons and rest from our contending, knowing that rest is coming. Help us Give us strength now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.